This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. For whom the bell tolls today, it's for the president's son. Indicted, we go in-depth into the twisting federal case against Hunter Biden. Bill Maher is returning with his hit HBO show without writers who are on strike. We look into whether his fans will join him or side with the writers. And we'll be talking with actor Jeff Daniels. He is sharing everything you've ever wanted to know about him and his long career in Hollywood. We start, though, with Hunter Biden's indictment. Christine Adams is back with us. She's a former federal prosecutor and current attorney here in Los Angeles. Christine, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Good afternoon, Charles. So I'm sure there are people who may be scratching their heads thinking, well, wait a minute. Wasn't this the guy, the president's son, who not that long ago seemed to have a deal worked out? Everything was going to be just swell. Uh, He was going to pay a price, but not a very huge one. Now he's being indicted and risks potentially if convicted, perhaps years uh, behind bars. How does that happen? Uh, You know, this is a very unusual case. It's very unusual to have a plea deal between the government and the defense where both parties go into court, the judge asks a few questions, and it turns out there isn't actually agreement on the scope of immunity that's being offered to Hunter Biden. And that's what happened here. They went into that hearing. Um, It was quickly determined that the government was not willing to provide Hunter Biden with immunity as to issues around his foreign business dealings in Ukraine and with Chinese officials. And um, that was it. The deal fell apart because the defense thought that that was actually part of the deal. So here we are. And what makes it even more um, interesting and significant is now Hunter Biden faces charges where uh, President Trump could be elected. If President Trump or if former President Trump is elected again, he's made clear he's going to go after Hunter Biden with everything he's got. And he will have the powers of the federal government behind him. You know, and and speaking of which, you know, right now, Joe Biden's in office and I was scouring X, formerly known as Twitter, and I did not see any all caps tweets from President Biden uh, excoriating prosecutors for going after uh, his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, So we don't have that. It, It does appear the appearance is that President Biden and the White House administration is uh, keeping hands off on this, not even making a statement. President Biden just gave a speech a few minutes ago, not saying a word about this. Are they are they making the right call? The Biden administration is in a very unique position. and I do believe they are making the right call because right now they are pursuing criminal charges against both the sitting president's son and the current Republican frontrunner in the next presidential election. You know, I, I increasingly am wondering if somebody were sitting sitting in another country uh, looking at the American justice system right about now uh, and all that has transpired in the past just few months, I'm wondering what they think about the state of of the American justice system right about now, because it seems awfully odd. It is odd. Uh, you know, these things, this, what I just described with a sitting president's son and with a former president, both being charged by the same administration, that's unusual. Um, but there is an argument to be made that the system of justice that we have in this country is even handed and does not, is not partisan in that way. 
Um, what else is interesting is the charges themselves. They're very unusual. You know, Hunter Biden has been charged with two counts of essentially lying on a form to buy a gun, and then also with one count of possessing a gun as a drug addict. Prosecutions like these are extremely rare as standalone charges. These kinds of charges are usually not brought unless there's some other serious crime that's additionally being brought. And they're certainly usually not brought against someone who has no previous criminal history like Hunter Biden and who has actually sought treatment for drug addiction. So, right, so, so then doesn't that counter what you just said before about uh, perhaps this all shows that we have an even handed criminal justice system? Because can't you make the argument that the reason why the government is going through this with Hunter Biden is because of the pressure they got from Republicans who were sort of almost daring them to do it, and they caved. You can make that argument. Uh, you know, I, I obviously don't have visibility into the reasons behind this prosecution decision, um, but you have a, a Trump appointee who was U.S. attorney as now special counsel bringing these charges. Um, it, you know, there's been a lot of controversy along the way, and I wish I had been a fly on a wall when they were trying to decide right. whether or when to bring these charges. There you go. Uh, thank you. Uh, Christine Adams, uh, former federal prosecutor, current attorney in L.A., commenting on this indictment of the president's son, Hunter. Right now, though, auto workers for Detroit's big three car makers, they could start to walk off the job as early as tomorrow as a new labor deal has yet to be reached. David Welsh is the Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If this strike were to happen, A, it would be the first time uh, aimed at all three of the major automakers, but also they wouldn't be walking off the job from all three at the same time. Is that right? That's right. The union's trying something new here, and, and I think it's a very tactical way of doing it. Uh, if if they do strike all three, and I think they probably will, they'll, they'll target select plants first. They won't just walk everybody out. And part of the reason is their strike fund, which is uh, not quite $850 million, if, if everyone went out, uh, they'd burn through that in, in about seven weeks. And they don't, first of all, they, they don't want to burn through all of it. But uh, so, you know, they have other kinds of workers and we rely on that. So uh, they're, they're you know, they'll pay strike pay to workers at these select plants, and they could be plants that would do some pretty serious financial damage, like pickup truck plants where a lot of profits are made, large SUVs like the Cadillac Escalade, uh, things like that, or a parts plant that would shut down three other plants. And, uh, you know, it was, so it would minimize their strike pay, but start to put pressure on management to get a deal done. You know, it's interesting here in uh, L.A., we are dealing with, you know, the writers and the actors being out on strike. And that's been kind of like a nuclear bomb going off because entertainment is a huge industry here. But uh, a strike against automakers would be kind of a a big bomb blowing up in the whole country because that's a major part of our economy. How much damage could this do if it goes on for a long amount of time? It would be a lot of damage here. Just think about General Motors alone. In uh, 2019, 40-day strike cost the company $3.6 billion. Economic impact to the nation, a 10-day strike with all three would be $5.6 billion hit to the uh, uh, U.S. GDP. Now, that doesn't sound huge, but there is ripple effects there. First of all, when GM went on strike, it put Michigan into a recession for a quarter. So you, you, you head into uh, 2014 election cycle with upper Midwest states 
having an economic slump due to a long strike, and that that makes things tougher on Joe Biden. So uh, you know, there's political political ripple effect, but you could see layoffs in parts companies, you could see layoffs uh, in steel and, and aluminum. So a long strike, and it doesn't take long, a couple of weeks, and you start shutting down some of these other industry plants. You know, David, and, you, and you, you, you mentioned parts companies, and that does raise the issue that uh, if the strike were to happen, and if it uh, is a long-lived um, it wouldn't just have an impact, would it, on being able to buy new cars? It would have an impact down the road, pun intended, um, for people who need their cars serviced, wouldn't it? Because wouldn't parts become harder to get? Yeah, it could, and and for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, you, the union could actually strike a replacement part plant, parts plant which means very quickly you could have a shortage of parts at the dealerships for getting repairs. But if you do have uh, some of the other suppliers going down because there's not enough demand uh, coming from GM, Ford, and Chrysler, now Stellantis, uh, then, yeah, they could shut down. Now, in some ways, some of the companies that make replacement parts, they actually have separate divisions within that do the older replacement parts as opposed to the, the newer stuff for newer vehicles. But you're, for, for newer models, you're going to have an impact in there somewhere. And, and that's where I think the union has to be careful. They, they do have some sympathy in the public for, uh, for, for labor these days. There is sympathy for UPS. There is sympathy for the uh, strike in your town. Um, but if someone has to wait six weeks to have their car fixed, a lot of that sympathy goes out the window. Uh, so, you know, they need to be careful on who they hit, that being the union, you know, with, with the impact of the strike. All right. Thank you so much. David Welch is the Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, talking about the United Auto Workers preparing to go out on strike. The deadline is midnight tonight. Bill Maher is restarting his HBO show Real Time without the writers who are, of course, on strike. Now, Maher wrote on social media, he said this, uh, the writers have important issues that I sympathize with and hope that they are addressed to their satisfaction, but they are not the only people with issues, problems, and concerns. And by the way, we, of course, did reach out to try to get Bill on the show, but did not hear back. The Writers Guild sent us a statement calling the decision disappointing and adding that the WGA will picket the show. So with us now is uh, Sal Calleros, who's writer and producer, whose credits include Snowfall and The Good Doctor. Also, Hollywood media expert and author Michael Levine. Uh, both of you, thanks for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Sal, let me, let me uh, begin with uh, you as, as a uh, WGA member. Uh, your union is saying it's disappointing and is going to picket the show. What do you think about uh, Bill's decision, Bill Maher's uh, decision to continue his show next week, I think it is? Yeah, it, it, disappointing is, is a really good word. Um, you know, to me, to be completely honest, his statement, it looks like he's trying to hide behind his cast and crew because other people in this industry like Spielberg have made large donations to support striking writers. Greg Berlanti, a showrunner, has donated over $500,000 to support his staff and crew. Uh, Bill Maher can do the same thing, but he's choosing to do something that's a little bit self-serving, to be honest. Mm. Uh, Michael, let me ask you, uh, this strike has gone on for quite some time now. Uh, it looks like it's going to go on for a while longer at the very least, but eventually it is going to be over. When it's over, uh, the striking writers are going to remember this. What will be the relationship 
with Bill Maher and the other uh, talk show hosts who are bringing their shows back? What's that relationship going to be like? Well, uh, in the short term, it may be troubled, but in the long term, I think it will have no real impact. I don't think it'll have any perception impact either on Bill Maher, who has built his entire career about being a contrarian, right? One of the things that Bill Maher fans like about Bill Maher, even when they don't agree with him, is that you can expect the unexpected. And he has impeccable liberal credentials, but he's acting in a contrarian manner. So in the long term, this might be a short-term problem for him, but in the long term, I think rather insignificant. Sal, which actually raises an interesting question, I think, Sal. Um, You know, the fact that the strike's been going on now uh, since, what, May, is it, uh, for the writers? Yeah, Yeah. Uh, so his show has been off for quite some time. Uh, you know, you don't have any more media buzz about it. Uh, you know, people stop talking about it. Do you think that this is basically a, a media stunt? Because after all, look, we're talking about it. Other media outlets have been talking about it. He's probably getting more publicity now than he has certainly since May. It's really interesting you say that, to, to tell you the truth. Because as we know, the studios hired this PR firm from Washington, D.C., the Levison Group. Um, headed up by Molly Levinson. And ever since that they've come on board, you've started seeing things like this bubble up, PR stunts. You've seen a lot more C-suite CEOs start to give interviews with the trades. I would not be surprised if this is a part of that. Mm. Michael, uh, do you think this would, uh, is this kind of a bellwether? Is this going to wind up breaking the strike? I don't know. Uh, This strike has gone on far longer than I could have anticipated, and it does not seem like it's ending anytime soon, though prophecy is dubious business. Um, But uh, there is enormous amounts of pain being caused to a vast number of people. And these people for whom the pain is being caused, it creates a sequela effect. So, in other words, first it's the riders, then it becomes the waiters and the Uber drivers, and it has an enormous uh, economic implication and psychological implication. Sal, uh, as we mentioned, we tried to get Bill on the show, uh, didn't hear back. So here's your opportunity if he's listening, and sometimes he drives around his car. I used to see him at a Starbucks uh, not too far from here. Um, What would you tell him? You know, I don't know what I would tell him, but I mean, everybody knows Bill Maher. And anyone who knows Bill Maher is that Bill Maher stands only for Bill Maher. Um, So, you know, these are like crocodile tears from him, you know, saying that how bad he feels for his crew. Um, If he really felt bad for his crew, he would do everything in his power to help the strike and not prolong it. And by bringing his show back, he's only helping prolong the strike. All right. Sal Cayeros, a writer and producer, thanks for joining us. Also on with us for the segment was uh, Hollywood media expert and author Michael Levine. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Actor Jeff Daniels has been a Hollywood staple over the past few decades. You've seen him in all kinds of movies and TV shows, from terms of endearment to arachnophobia. There's a movie I forgot about, but I remember loving it. There's a movie I can't pronounce the name of. Arachnophobia. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Also, uh, one of my favorites, HBO's The Newsroom, and of course, uh, Dumb and Dumber. 
Jeff, with the help of his son, Ben Daniels, is now sharing stories from his really remarkable career, as well as his own music in a new audio memoir podcast. It's called Live and Well Enough on Audible. Jeff Daniels and his son, Ben, are with us now. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Hello, thank you. Thank you. Jeff, uh, let's start with, with you. This sounds like a really interesting but unusual project. So can you kind of describe to our listeners exactly what this is? Well, I, my agent called me about a year and a half ago. He said, you know, you're the only actor in Hollywood who doesn't have a podcast. And <laughs> I'm going, is that a problem? And, and I said, well, look, I'll do what I do, uh, but it's, if that doesn't work, forget it. And Audible Originals thought that it worked. It's like a one-man musical. I've been playing guitar and writing songs basically just for myself, for my own entertainment, or I will, I'll take the guitar out and play clubs, which I've done for the last 20, 25 years. And I, I enjoy it. And it's I have complete creative freedom in the 10-minute story of what it's like to be shot and killed by Clint Eastwood in a movie. And then the, here's a song called Dirty Harry Blues about getting shot and killed by Clint Eastwood. And so it was a kind of compilation of all those things. I talk about acting, songwriting. I go behind the scenes on what it was like to work on Newsroom with the great Aaron Sorkin. Uh, that was a great was show, like. by the way. Yes. That was a really good show. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Atticus Finch on Broadway. So I really just kind of poured everything in, and I try to make it as entertaining as possible with really deliver a sense of humor about the whole thing, and, and hopefully people will enjoy it. You know, you talk about the newsroom. Uh, that is the show that uh, my current wife, before we admitted to each other that we were, in fact, dating each other, she used to come over, and we watched the newsroom. And I am convinced to the day that if she had the ability to meet you in person, she would dump me in a heartbeat for you. Do you get that a lot? Well, there's there's the fictional me, which is far more enjoyable, probably. Uh, uh, Kathleen, Kath, my own wife, Kathleen, would attest to that. I think. Uh, ben, uh, let me let me ask you about how you got involved in in this project, other than than it's your dad, but also. Did you learn something about him that maybe you didn't know? Um, well, we got involved because it's we kind of we have a studio, and that's what what I grew up doing is recording and doing music, and so we kind of always record music together and play in a band together a lot, and so it's just what we do: audiobooks, uh, this and that, and this turned into something that became a an option to do is let's do this um, audio memoir and. Um, it's just, it's just been what, what we've been doing for the past 10 years. So, yeah, but, but what, but um, did you, but but did you learn something about him that maybe you didn't know or surprised you? Um, I guess it didn't really learn something. I mean, I learned a lot that was new, but kind of just learning that he's how, how much he's stuck with things because a lot of stories from the seventies where he's playing and just learning a lot about his career and just how he, he's still doing the things he did back then. And it's just, it's pretty inspirational. Ben, I hear a lot of uh, your father's uh, voice in your voice. Uh, if they ever made a movie about your dad's life, would you play him as a younger man? Oh, I, I suppose I would be a good fit for that. Jeff, let me ask you a variation of, of the question I asked uh, Ben. Uh, 
in going down this road that you chose to go down, uh, looking over your career and, and, and really by, by uh, definition, part of your, your life, were there things that you learned about yourself that, that maybe you for years didn't think much about? Yeah, I did. I, this is a chance to remember. And, you know, I'm 68 years old now, and it's, you know, there's a lot behind me. And I, you're always, as an actor, artist, you're always, what's next, the next thing. And this was a chance to go and remember back when and kind of get into the 1970s and what I had to deal with to just sustain an off-Broadway career and, 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 and end up being kind of, you know, pulled into it. And uh, it, it really, um, it reminded me how far I've come. And, and uh, it's a great chance for to also leave behind my definition of the legacy to the degree that it's, you know, small L. But I was really taken with Springsteen's book. And then I went to see Springsteen's Broadway show where he was on stage just by himself. And I, I watched him and I said, he's defining his own legacy. He's going, no, this is my story and this is how I want it told. And that, that felt like, what we were doing and then it's you know we are what we leave behind and to have been hearing these stories i mean they'll be there forever long after i'm gone not only for him but my other two kids and and grant all that stuff you're leaving something behind that's that's a record of what you did and and i'm the only one who knows it so that 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 hit me about halfway through recording it and we're back with actor Jeff, Jeff Daniels and his son, Ben. Got two names. Two names always throw me. I don't know why. It just does. Jeff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're talking about Alive and Well Enough, which is uh, Jeff's audio memoir podcast available right now on uh, Audible. Not only does it include storytelling, but original music, too, from Jeff Daniels. Jeff, you could have written a book. Uh, many celebrities do and uh, pretty much tell the same stories that you tell in this podcast. What made you choose this route, doing a podcast, including your own music? Why that way of doing it? Well, I've been playing out, as they say, with an acoustic guitar since about 20, well, 2001 or so. So I, I, I literally, th- I, I thought the acting career was going to end. It wasn't going great in, in 2000, 2005. It was slowing down. And I thought that's where I'd end up you know, playing clubs all over the country, 200 seaters, telling stories about the career, and here's a song about it. And I probably would have been happy with that. And and then Newsroom happened, and um, the career kept going and has continued to go. So it's really just, I was already kind of doing that, sitting on a chair in a club in front of 200 people. And so when it came time to do a podcast or an audio memoir, I just incorporated a lot of that into it. So it becomes like a one-man musical that's as entertaining as possible and then slide in some of the more serious stuff, you know, once in a while. So it's, it's, it's built like a set list. The 12-episode the first season is it's unpredictable, just like a set list should be. You make them laugh, you make them laugh, then you slide in a song like Grandfather's Hat, which is about a hat, a fedora that somebody said, is that your grandfather's hat? And then a song came out of that and remembering my grandfather. And I'd, I'd play that song at clubs and people would come up afterwards going, my aunt's necklace and my mother's ring and my, you know, it landed. And so 
that's kind of what the show is. It's an extension of what I do on, on stage uh, in a club. Uh, ben, when you're working with your dad on this, were there any stories that he wanted to tell or write songs about that you thought and maybe you told him, I uh, don't do that one? <laughs> oh, no. No, he 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 went, did some, said some things that he said he, I don't know, he, he put some things out there that maybe, I wouldn't say maybe he shouldn't have, but. Oh, right, oh, right, wait, wait, you just, right, you just touched a nerve there, Ben. <laughs> were there things that... that not, not about me. No, 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 <laughs> but, but were, were there things that, 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 I don't know, maybe, I don't know, did they embarrass you, or you thought that it would embarrass him? Oh, no, no, he's, he's always been telling great stories that include us, and we're, it's, it's all good. Okay. It's nothing wrong with that. Jeff, let, let me ask you a, a, a question, because you were talking about legacy. Uh do you worry that, you know, long after you're, you're gone, that uh, Hollywood is going to produce another project with a AI-generated Jeff Daniels? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the issues that's, that's causing one of the, the, you know, some of the problems. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's too far to stretch the imagination to, you know, let's say this, not now, maybe five, maybe 10 years from now, Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze have a baby created by AI Hmm. and they name him Joe Smith. And now you've got a new action hero in a movie that just made a hundred million. That's almost, that's almost nightmare fuel. (laughs) It is, well, but that's that's that's. I mean, we're on the edge of that, I think, and uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 one of the big issues of why we're we're staying out. All right, uh, Jeff Daniels. Let me ask you one more question. You said twelve episodes in this first season of the podcast, but you've had such a long, interesting career, and and you're—I don't know how to put words in it. You, you don't act like many other actors do. You have another way of kind of sliding up to your role, and it's always interesting to watch. You probably have so many stories you could tell. How many seasons of this podcast do you think you could do if you had all the time in the world? Well, if Audible Originals, you know, likes it and the audience listens to it and they want more of it, I, I, Ben and I are looking at 10 seasons easily. I, it, there, are, uh, there are stories upon stories upon stories and, and things I've learned, too. A lot of, lot of what I'm going to focus on isn't, I mean, this isn't a kiss and tell. Go listen to something else if you want that. This is what I learned from Aaron Sorkin, what I learned from Meryl Streep, what I got from Jack Nicholson what Robert De Niro was like when he came into my dressing room and to kill a mockingbird. I mean, I I'm bringing you into those rooms and I'm, I'm telling you what I learned, what I got and what I put, put into my acting, into my career. And, and it's, it's me just sharing everything I've ever learned uh, with those who are interested enough to listen. I got to tell you, uh, and, and, and I'm very sincere in saying this, uh, Jeff, one of my bigger regrets is I wanted to uh, go back to New York to see you uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I wasn't able to get back to uh, New York in time when you were doing that run. Uh, and uh, maybe if you do it again, <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly go. <laughs> you do it for Charles. Yeah, just, just do it for well, me. Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly enough, the end of the first episode... I went, I did go back. I was in it for a year and then COVID. And then they, would you come back as we try to, you know, bring Broadway out of COVID? And 
I, I went back into it for three months, and I gave a curtain speech on my last show on the uh, Sunday matinee of January 2nd, I think, and, and I it, it was goodbye. And uh, I was able to get the audio from that speech from a, uh, they do an archival recording of every show just in case something goes wrong. And I was able to get the audio from that. So you hear me in the end of the first episode start the speech that I gave on stage that day at the curtain call. And then all of a sudden you're in the Schubert Theater and you can hear it as if you're sitting in the back of the orchestra section. Hmm. All so right. It, you know, it's, it's stuff like that, that that Ben and I are able to kind of weave into the show that kind of we want to pull the listener in to the world that I was inhabiting, whether it was back in the 70s or standing on stage at the Schubert Theater. All right. Actor Jeff Daniels and his son, Ben. New podcast from uh, Jeff talking about his life, stories about his career, and songs about them as well called Alive and Well Enough from Audible, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. That's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow.